Mark chapter 11. There are two main events recorded in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that occurred on Monday of the Passion Weekend. Both were acts of judgment, which was very uncharacteristic for the Lord at his first coming because his first coming ministry was all about saving the world and not condemning the world. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, John 3:17 says. These two judgments were the cursing of a fruitless fig tree, which we discussed before our resurrection break, and the cleansing of the filthy temple, which is going to be the subject matter of our lesson this morning. Now, in that first act of judgment last time, we had a picture of the hypocrisy of Israel's spiritual state. She had an outward show of worshiping God through all of her ceremonies and her sacrifices and her offerings and her rituals and her feast days and her Sabbaths and so on. But it was all leaves and no fruit because she had lost sight of God himself. She had become more caught up in her ritualistic religion for God than in having a right relationship with God. She was like that deceptive fig tree somewhere between Bethany and Jerusalem because she had lots of green leaves. Israel and Judaism were full of green leaves, but she had absolutely no fruit to, to feed those who were spiritually hungry. She was worshiping her religious system um, more than worshiping the one the system was divinely designed to point to. And who was that? Christ. The whole system. The sacrifices, the offerings, the temple, the temple furniture, starting all the way back with the tabernacle in the wilderness. All of it was to point to Christ, and yet when he showed up, she didn't even recognize him. Now today we're going to see why Israel's originally God-given system of worship was so barren. Why she had no fruit. Her outward fruitlessness was due to her inner corruption. She was outwardly fruitless because inside she was filthy. What did Jesus call those religious rulers? We haven't gotten to that yet. I think it's over in Matthew 23. Yes, whited sepulchers. On the outside, they look so clean and pious, which is how many religious people look on the outside. But inside, what were they full of? Dead men's bones. She was outwardly fruitless because inwardly she was corrupt and filthy. And nowhere was this more evident than in what the religious leaders had permitted and even promoted within the very temple of God. Now, Mark 11:12. if you look at that verse, he's the only one who tells us that this cleansing of the temple occurred on the day following the Lord's official presentation of himself as Israel's Messiah, which was on Palm Sunday. So because Mark told us that it was on the morrow, if you see that on the morrow, this means that the cleansing of the temple happened on Monday. Okay, so if you want to write a note on the morrow, you could put Monday above that so you'd remember in the future. Um, we're going to use Mark's account, even though Matthew and Luke also contain this second cleansing of the Lord of the temple. You know, the Lord cleansed the temple on two occasions. One is recorded for us in John chapter two. That was at the very beginning of his ministry, also on the Passover, which is interesting. And then he cleansed the temple again at the end of his ministry, also, you know, on the Passover Monday of the Passion Week. This is the second cleansing of the temple, and it occurred on Monday. Matthew and uh, Luke tell us about this, but they don't give us any additional information. Mark gives us the most information about this second cleansing of the temple, so we're going to use Mark's account. So let's review by, real quickly, go up to, um, go up to like, like look at verses 8 to nine, uh, 9 and 10. That's where he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, you know, on that little donkey, and all the crowds were shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, etc., And then we get to verse 11. He entered into Jerusalem, went straight to the temple. He looked around on everything. And when evening was come, where did he go? 
back to Bethany where he spent the night with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And then it says, on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And then we have the account of what we looked at last time, the cursing of the fig tree, which he did as he was on his way to Jerusalem, probably in the area of Bethpage. He cursed that fruitless fig tree. And then we get to where we are today. Look at verse 15. After he cursed the, the fig tree, it says in verse 15, And they come to Jerusalem, that's he and his men, and Jesus went into the temple. This is his second entrance into the holy city during the Passion Week. There were three entrances he made into Jerusalem on that last week. This is the second one, okay? He went into the temple and ca- began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. We'll stop for, right here for just a minute to explain something. Notice it only says he overturned the seats of those that sold doves. It doesn't have any mention of the sheep or oxen as it did if you go back to John chapter 2. I'm not sure what verse it was, but um, in the first cleansing of the temple, it says he overturned those who sold sheep and oxen. Here it only mentions doves. Do you know why? Because in the first temple cleansing, it was It was before the 10th of Nisan, so they were still selling the lambs. This is after the 10th of Nisan. This is the 11th of Nisan. This is Monday. Remember, it's on the 10th of Nisan that the Israelites were to select their Passover lamb on the 10th. And then for the next three and a half days, they were to examine it thoroughly to make sure it didn't have any spots or blemishes. And what day would they slay it? The 14th, the 14th, which would be Thursday of this Passion Week. So there are no more, there are no lambs for sale on Monday because the lambs have already been selected on Sunday. So that's interesting. It just gives you one more detail of how accurate the scripture is. So at this point, there's just doves because the doves were for poor people. Poor people who could not afford lambs could buy a pair of doves and use those in place of a lamb. So the doves were still available during the rest of the Passion Week up until Thursday when they would be offered as a sacrifice. Okay, then let's look at verse 16. It says, and, and would not, this is speaking of Jesus, would not suffer, meaning he wouldn't permit that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. People were using the temple as a shortcut to get from one end of town to the other. You know, the temple was massive. We'll talk about its size in a minute. But people were going through one gate and out the other gate rather than walking all the way around it to get from one part of the city to the other. And they were carrying big vessels as they did that. And he put an end to that. And he taught, saying unto them, this is unto anybody who didn't get mad at him and left the area, those who were still willing to listen to him, he taught them. And he said, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. That word destroy in Greek is kill. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. Okay. After the Lord cursed the fruitless fig tree, probably somewhere near Bethpage, which means house of unripe figs, he and his men continued their walk about another mile or so. And we read in verse 15, they then came into Jerusalem. This is, as I said, his second entry into the holy city during the Passion Week. On the first day, Sunday, when he rode in on the little donkey, he presented himself to Israel as her king. Remember, the people were shouting, blessed is the king of Israel. And he didn't deny that. He accepted that. That was in John 12:13. So on the first day, he presented himself as king. 
Now on the second day, two, uh, Monday, he presents himself as Israel's priest, his high, their high priest. He again heads straight to the temple. And what's he going to do? He's going to pronounce his judgment upon the perversion of worship that is taking place there. And then, as we will find out in the future, on Tuesday, his third entrance into Jerusalem, he presents himself that time as Israel's prophet. You know, Israel knew that one day her Messiah, Messiah would come as a prophet like unto Moses. That was predicted back in Deuteronomy 18.15. And so Tuesday is the day he does a lot of teaching. He really prophesies. He gives us the Olivet Discourse and etc. So he comes as king, priest, and prophet. You know, no man could hold all three roles. As a matter of fact, no man could hold even two of those positions. But Jesus Christ, of course, who is the Son of God, held all three positions. Now, it's interesting when you consider the entrance into the city in those three days, he actually fulfilled those positions in reverse order from the the way he came in. Now, let me explain what I mean. On, on um, his third entrance, on Tuesday, as prophet, that's the role that he actually fulfilled first. That's his past role. He came, he's already come as God's supreme prophet, the one who revealed to us what God is like. If we want to know God and hear what God has to say, who do we look at and listen to? Jesus Christ. So his third entrance as prophet was actually the first role that he fulfilled. It's his past role. It's been fulfilled. On his second entrance into Jerusalem on Monday as priest, that's the role he's currently fulfilling. That's his present role, right? Is he not today our high priest seated at the right hand of God the Father interceding for the saints? That's his present role. And then on his first Passion Week entrance, which was on Palm Sunday, he uh, came as king, and that's the role that he will yet fulfill in the future. They didn't accept him as their king, but when he comes the next time in the future, he will come not only as the king of Israel, but as king of kings. So on Tuesday, prophet, that's his past role, fulfilled already. Monday, priest, that's his present role. Sunday, king, that's his fu future role. So we are told that when the Lord and his men entered into Jerusalem on Monday, he went straight to the temple as he always did. He didn't go to the governor's mansion, did he? He didn't go over to Pilate's mansion. He didn't go over to anti, um, anti, uh, Herod Antipas's palace. And we know Herod Antipas was there. He was the Tetrarch of Galilee, but we know he was in Jerusalem at this time. And we're going to know that because of the trials that they have for Jesus that he goes over to, uh, he's sent to Herod. But he didn't go to the palace of the king. He didn't go to the governor's mansion. He didn't even go to the court of the rulers. He didn't even go to where the Sanhedrin met, which was right there near the temple. Instead, he went to the house of God, showing again that his kingdom is not of this world, is it? Not interested in palaces and mansions and, and, and white houses or whatever. You know, he's not even interested in the religious rulers, the ecumenical councils and where they meet. His interest and his authority, his rule, were in the temple of God and in the hearts of men. So he went to the temple to cleanse it and to show how the temple is to be used. It was being used not right. And so he's going to teach them how it should have been used. Now, if you remember, he had taken a good scrutinizing look at everything that had been going on there in the temple. This is in Mark 11:11. 11, 11. Um, before he had left the temple late Sunday afternoon. And, of course, it's very obvious by his actions and words of what we just read in, the, in Mark 11:15 15 to 17 that he had not at all liked what he had seen. 
going on there in the court of the Gentiles. And he had probably not slept very much that night. We speculated about that before, and that's probably why he was hungry. You know, he hadn't slept much. I'm sure he probably spent most of the night in prayer and got up extremely early and beat Martha and Mary, you know, before they got up because they did, apparently didn't fix him a breakfast. He was already on the road, saw the fig tree, and was hungry. Um, and I think all the reason that he didn't sleep much is because within his heart it was just burning. He was burning with righteous indignation over what he had seen going on in the, the house of God. And he had a holy zeal to get back there and remove the evil that was taking place there. You know, the irony of this situation in first century Israel was that although... This is the Passover. And you know what the ladies did at the time of Passover, right before Passover? Everybody in Israel, the ladies in particular and the children, they were very busy rigorously cleaning their own homes of every little bit and piece of leaven that might be in their homes. They would... This is, I think, where spring cleaning came from. (laughs) They would take little brooms and they would sweep their homes from top to bottom to make sure that there was not one little bit of leaven in their home. And um, yet, they're doing all of this at this time, but no one, no one seems to be concerned at all about removing the influence of worldliness that had spread like a cancerous growth into the temple over the passing decades. You know, everybody's busy cleaning their own houses, but who's cleaning the house of God. It was full of all kinds of evil. There was corruption going on. There was greed was everywhere um, present. Irreverence for the temple with people taking the shortcuts and all the things that, other things that were going on there. Commercialism, sectarianism, you name it, it seemed to be going on in the temple. Now, <clears throat> there are two Greek words in the New Test- that are used in the New Testament for temple. There is the word naos, and if you take your uh, little diagrams there of the wilderness tabernacle, look at that. You see the little, the word tabernacle over here? Underneath it is a picture of the naos. The naos consisted of two sections. You had your holy place, and it was divided from the holy of holies by the thick veil. That's the inner sanctuary of the temple. Now, Herod's temple, you can see it right here. Well, it's within this kind of cross-looking building. There it is, the Naos. It's the inner sanctuary, the holy place and the, and the holy of holies. But that's not the word that is used in our text here. They're not speaking about the inner sanctuary. Je- Jesus didn't go into the inner sanctuary and clean it, the holy of holies and the holy place. He wouldn't even have been allowed past the uh, court of the Israelites. Again, if you look at Herod's temple, he would not have been allowed into the court of the priests. So there's no way he would have gotten into the nows to cleanse it. You know why they would not have allowed Jesus to get into the court of the priests? Because he didn't come from the right tribe. To be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. So he would not have qualified to have been of the Levitical priesthood because he came from the tribe of Judah. He couldn't even have qualified to be their high priest because the high priest, Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, he also came from the tribe of Levi. Aaron and Moses' father was um, a Levite. So he couldn't have qualified to be a, a, a priest. But do you know what? He actually came from a higher priesthood than the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood because he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek had been offered a tithe by Abraham. 
Now, when you offer a tithe to another, it's the lower offering the tithe to the higher. Abraham, from Abraham came um, Levi. You know, he was a descendant of Abraham. So because Abraham offered the tithe to Melchizedek, Melchizedek was of a higher priesthood. Melchizedek had two roles. Oh, my, that's interesting. No man was supposed to have two roles. He was king of Salem, which is king of Jerusalem king of peace and he was also a high priest the high the high priest of the most high god priest of the most high god he was a mysterious character wasn't he we really don't know much about him he just appeared suddenly and disappeared suddenly he was a type he was a picture some even think he was the pre-incarnate christ himself christ was after the order of of um the, the priesthood of melchizedek so he had every right to really be Israel's high priest and go straight into the Holy of Holies. You know, Jesus didn't have a place to call home during his first coming ministry, did he? The foxes had their holes and the birds of the air had their nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He didn't have a real home. You know why? Do you know where his home should have been? In the naos. Yes, in the hearts of men. But if there had been a right place for him to lay his head at night, it would have been in the Holy of Holies. That was his home. He was the Shekinah glory. It was just veiled in human flesh. I don't know how I got off onto that. How did I get... Okay, we're back to the... There's two words, naos. All right, now the word used here is not naos, but the other word is ieron in Greek. It means the whole temple area. It speaks of all, all the rest of it is ieron. The temple precincts, or the ieron, surrounded the naos in Herod's temple with four main courtyards and each one decreased in importance in the Jewish mind as its location grew further and further from the inner sanctuary of the Naos. Now, as I describe these various courtyards to you, be looking at your visual aid here, but remember that there were very thick walls that separated one courtyard from the other. Okay, <clears throat> working from the inside out, there was the court of the priests. You see that? The court of the priests was everything that surrounded that naos there. And inside the court of the priests, you had the brazen altar and you had the laver. Now, the laver is in the wrong location, ladies, in Herod's temple. Flip over to the pattern of the t tabernacle, the wilderness tabernacle. I want you to see that design up here. Okay, look at this design up here. This is the design that God gave, not the design you see on Herod's temple. This is God's design that he gave to Moses, a pattern of that which is in heaven. And you will notice that the brazen altar is in perfect alignment with the laver and the altar of incense inside the holy place and the Ark of the Covenant. That is because, well, see the gate? Go from the gate. There's only one way in. One way. The gate is narrow. You couldn't get into the tabernacle any other way. There was no, no other door. One, well, they called it a gate. And that's a picture of the narrow gate. All right? And, and then you had to, you'd have to, once you got in, you, you offered your sacrifice at the brazen altar. That's where the blood was shed. Then the laver is where the priests would wash their hands. It was made with mirrors that women donated. So you could look down in it and see yourself. It's a picture of the Word of God. It's a mirror we look into. We are washed 
We need to be washed daily before we can enter into the presence of God and, in, you know, have intercession with him, which is a picture of the uh, ark, not the ark, the uh, altar of incense. It's so small, I can't see the writing, <laughs> the altar of incense. But it's interesting, you know, we are now a royal priesthood. So all of us have access into the court of the priests as believers. We've come through the narrow gate. We're part of the priesthood of God. Um, Jesus offered the sacrifice for us once for all, so there's no more sacrifices. But before we come into his daily presence, we've been washed once all over when, we're, when we accept Jesus Christ. And that's what they would do with the priests. They, when they were initiated into the priesthood, they were cleansed from top to bottom. They were washed completely all over, and then they were anointed with oil, which speaks of the Holy Spirit. And then they could go into the priesthood. But before they could go into the presence of God, and enter into the holy place, they had to wash again at the laver. You know what that speaks of? Daily washing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every day we are to confess our sins. That's the laver. And then and then there was a one door into the holy place, and it was called the door. This one was the gate. The second one was called the door. And didn't Jesus say, I am the door. And inside the holy place, I've really gotten off my track here, but inside the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture. You had the table of showbread and the uh, golden lampstand on, on two sides of the holy place. Okay. All of this is picturing a cross. If you go all the way straight up, from the gate, the altar, the laver, all the way to the Ark of the Covenant, you have one long vertical line, don't you? And then when you're inside and you've got your, your two pieces of furniture, table of showbread and your candlestick, your golden candlestick, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. Those two pieces of furniture spoke of fellowship among the believers. I don't have time to develop that, but just trust me. But those are the two outstretched arms of Jesus embracing his own. And you have the horizontal line of the cross. The whole tabernacle spoke, the design that God gave to Moses, spoke of the, the redemptive work of the cross. It's absolutely beautiful. The Ark of the Covenant is where God himself, beyond the veil in heaven, dwelt. The Ark spoke of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. You know, when he was on the cross, his blood... All that blood, he was just a bloody mess. You couldn't even recognize him. He was so covered with blood. All the blood dripped down, didn't it? And if you picture this as the cross, where did the blood drip down to? The altar, the brazen altar. Perfect picture. And he, the head of the, the church, is the, the Ark of the Covenant. It's absolutely all, oh, everything in that. I mean, I want to do a study one day on, on the tabernacle and the, and the temple and how it pictures Christ so beautifully. But Herod had messed that up. Herod had messed that up. This was not God's temple. This was Herod's temple. There was no ark in this temple. There was no Shekinah glory in this temple, and I'll read about that later on. But anyway, the four main courtyards. The first one was the court of the priests. Now, the, only the priests were allowed into the court of the priests. And um, then there was the court of the Israelites. And as you can see on your little map here, the court of the Israelites was a very long, narrow courtyard. <clears throat> where Jewish worshipers, this is where men who weren't priests, this is as far as they could go. But on special feast days, when uh, there was some kind of a joint service, women could go up onto those steps. You see those steps right there between the court of the women and, and the court of the Israelites? Women could go up on the steps um, 
on special feast days, and women could also enter into the court of the Israelites to offer their sacrifices to the priests. Now, do you see that long line that has two circles on each end, which stands between the court of the Israelites and the court of the priests? That little that line is a wall, but it's a low wall. It's probably as high as this pulpit. And it was there so that the, the Israelites, men and women, could come and pass their lambs or their doves across that wall to the priests, who then took the sacrifice to the brazen altar and, and offered it there as their, their sacrifice. Okay, so you had the, um, <clears throat> the court of the priests, the court of the Israelites, and then there was the court of the women, which was also known as the treasury. Now, this is as far as women were allowed to go unless... It was an occasion of a great feast day and they could go on those steps or unless they were offering their sacrifice across that wall. Otherwise, women were confined to the court of the women. Now, you don't really, there's not enough space on this page to contain the whole of the, the next court, which was the court of the Gentiles, but it, it was absolutely massive and it, was, it surrounded the entire temple area there. It was uh, 14 acres in size, which would be the equivalent of 13 football fields. So the court of the Gentiles was massive. And it was, well, Alfred Edersheim said that it was actually 1,000 feet by 1,000 feet, which um, this is the, the whole temple precinct area. If you count the Naos and all the courts was, was 20 acres. It's just huge. And this is supposed to have been, the court of the Gentiles was supposed to be where Gentile converts to Judaism could come to worship, or any Gentile, really, who was at all interested in learning about the God of the Jewish people. We're going to see, Lord willing, we're going to see next week some Greeks who are in this court, and they desire to see Jesus. So it was a place where, you know, the Jews should have considered, mission, you know, a mission field. Here were these Gentiles who who they could tell about the, the true God, and um, and and, and there were, of course, many there that were also proselytes to Judaism. They had actually come in faith to believe in the true God. Now, there were signs posted all along the, um, the wall that separated the court of the women down here from the court of the Gentiles. And they have actually, archaeologists have found one of those signs. And it clearly says, no Gentile allowed beyond this point. The Gentiles were not allowed anywhere except in the outer court there. Now, these kinds of barriers, I said these walls between these courtyards were very thick. These kind of barriers certainly did their part in fostering self-righteousness and pride and jealousy and prejudice and sectarianism. Do you see any walls on the design God gave Moses? I don't. I don't see any walls. I just see outside and inside. The narrow gate on the way in. You know, anybody, if they're willing to accept Christ, could just... Of course, it was only for the priests. I know that. But, but there weren't the walls. That was, that, the walls were man's doing, not God's doing. God is no respecter of persons. The temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples. Jesus even said that. He quoted from Isaiah 56, uh, 7 in verse 17 of Mark 11 when he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? 
That's a direct quote of Isaiah 56, 7, which says this, of Gentiles speaking. Now, this is Old Testament, okay? Isaiah is Old Testament, and here's what it says of Gentiles. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And that's not the only place in the Old Testament that, that, that it says that. This was a very critical lesson, which God had tried repeatedly to teach men and, and nations down through the years. There is no superior race. There is no caste system. There is no, um, there is no social elite. There, are no, there is no preferred gender when it comes to sex. Now, there are different roles, yes. But in God's eyes, every person who comes to faith in him and in, in, in his promised Savior was to have access to the temple of God. And no one was to be barred and no one was to be ignored. They were to be able to come. You know, if they had joined themselves to the Lord, they were to be able to come and offer their sacrifices and worship and pray to the one and truly God, true God. I think, personally, I don't know for sure, and I couldn't find... I really need to get some more books on the temple, but I think, you know, when Herod built this temple, that the Pharisees had a lot to do with all those different walls and courtyards. Because the Pharisees were full of pride, weren't they? And they were very, very sectarian. Now, the Sadducees had most of what they had to do with what was going on in the courtyard with all this uh, money-making business. But I think the Pharisees were probably in charge of all those walls. All right. Now, you know that at the time of Christ, there were two co-reigning high priests, which right there tells you something about the spiritual condition of Israel at the time of the Lord, right? Because there weren't supposed to be two high priests. There was only supposed to be one high priest at a time, and he was in that position for a lifetime. In the fact that there were two, they weren't being biblical at all here. This was, this was a no-no. Why was there only supposed to be one high priest? Because he was a picture of the fact that there is only one mediator between God and man, and he is Christ Jesus. So, uh, and they were both wicked men. They were corrupt men. One was Annas. He was older. He was the father-in-law of the other, Caiaphas. Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law. They were both Sadducees. You know what? Why a sad was a sad was C? <laughs> Do you know why they were? You know why they were sad? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't, I don't know what, I really still don't know what these guys believed in. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. What did they have left? I guess they believed in themselves. <laughs> um, but they, uh, and that's another factor that tells us something about the spiritual condition of Israel and the fact that both of her high priests didn't believe even in the resurrection of the dead. The fact that she had two and that they didn't believe in the resurrection or angels or anything else. What we really could say they were was first century hedonists. You know what a hedonist is? A hedonist is someone who just believes in today and now and might as well live it up, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. That's a hedonist. They were first century hedonists who put on religious masks. They were, in other words, big deceptive fig leaves. Through their perverted theology, these men had convinced themselves that there was nothing wrong with the material gain, even at the expense of others. Because they viewed wealth 
regardless of how it was obtained, they viewed it as their deserved reward for being so religious, you know, outwardly pious and obeying all the laws and the traditions and the ceremonies, etc. So they believed that they were, you know, God, if they were rich, that was proof of God's blessing on them. Now, for centuries, it had been possible for Passover pilgrims coming from their distant homes and lands to purchase at very reasonable prices the necessary sacrificial animals from local Judean shepherds. You know, on the night of the Lord's birth, there were some shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem. You know what those guys were doing? They were tending to lambs that would be sold for temple sacrifices. They were Judean shepherds. People could go out to the the fields around Bethlehem and over near Bethany or Bethpage and other places around Jerusalem and buy at very reasonable prices little lambs. And that greatly aided the people who were coming from long places away because they didn't have to transport animals with them on their long journeys to Jerusalem. However, Annas and his greedy cohorts devised a way to make the Passover feast a more profitable time for the local merchants, but they weren't really concerned about the local merchants. They were more concerned about themselves. It was a time they could profit from. So they decided that they would uh, permit all the local animal merchants to set up stalls or booths right in the court of the Gentiles to make it more convenient for all the arriving pilgrims to purchase their sacrifices right there in the court of the Gentiles in close proximity to where they could then be offered. All they'd have to do is walk from the court of the Gentiles through the court of the women, up those steps, pass it over the wall to the priests. So, you know, they say, we're going to make this very convenient for the people. Now, this whole thing was inspired by evil and it it promoted evil. But evil men often like to justify their evil by saying, oh, we're just helping the people in their worship. This is going to help them in their worship. And uh, they probably also figured in their minds, you know, well, this court of the Gentiles is already defiled anyway, just by the presence of Gentiles being in there. So what difference would it make to bring in animals and have animals all over the place? Now, the rent collected by Annas and his priests for the merchant's animal selling booths and the money changer booths we'll talk about them later uh, plus a percentage of all their sales they not only charged rent you know if you want to set up a booth here you charge us rent for the space but then we also get a percentage of all your sales that resulted in several things number one it made (laughs) Annas and Caiaphas and uh, those cooperating in the, the priesthood and most of those who were involved in this were Sadducees I really don't think many Pharisees, because the Pharisees were conservative, and I think they would have really been against this. But the Sadducees were in control of the Sanhedrin, and the high priests were Sadducees. But uh, this, it, it made them extremely wealthy. In fact, the entire operation became known as what? Annas's Bazaar by the common people. Second, these, this arrangement drove up the animal prices considerably considerably compared to what the people used to be able to go into Bethlehem, you know, and buy a lamb for whatever. I don't know, let's just say a dollar. But now they were very much uh, um, increased in price. The merchants, you see, had to add to their already inflated prices in order to cover their overhead, their rent for the booth, and also their payoff to the priests. 
And then don't you know that greed also played a, a part in the hearts of the merchants? And so, you know, they knew that they had their buyers at a disadvantage because by the time the Passover pilgrims arrived in Jerusalem and went to the temple, they were not about to turn around and go back into the countryside fields of Judea to find a lamb at a cheaper price. It's kind of like when you're on a highway and you need gas. The the gas stations along the highways have you at a disadvantage because they know you're going to pay the price. You're not going to go far inland to find a cheaper price. So they took advantage of that. And one commentator said that five-cent doves. Now, remember, the doves were for the poor people. Five-cent doves were selling for $4. What kind of increase is that? I don't know. I'm not smart enough to figure out that. But that's terrible. Five-cent, how much? 800%. Well, she's good. 800%. It's just terrible. Obviously, they, they had no compassion, the merchants and the priests and Annas and his crowd. They had no compassion for the poor. And the priests, you know, they had a monopoly. And the people either paid their price or they didn't have the necessary sacrifice unless they brought their own animals with them on their long journeys. And so people tried to do that. They tried to bring their own doves and their own lambs and their own oxen, their long journeys with them, which would be kind of a pain but they would do that. But guess what? Annas and his little crowd even had a contingency for that to happen because they set up temple inspectors who were their own priests. And the people who brought in their own animals had to go through the temple inspection process. And don't you know that every temple inspector who inspected an animal brought from the outside always managed to find a little owie <laughs> on the lamb. There was a little blemish or a bruise. Oh, look at this. It's not acceptable. It's not worthy for sacrifice. You better go over there and buy one of ours. So they had quite an operation going on. Um, <clears throat> then, and, and that, isn't that no wonder Jesus called it a den of thieves. Then you had also scattered throughout the whole courtyard money changers with their cash boxes. They were conveniently on hand. You see, the numerous foreign Jews who came into Jerusalem at this annual feast and some of the other feasts would, um, would possess their own local currency. But the Jews had decided the Sanhedrin had made it a mandatory law for all foreign currency to be exchanged for Jewish shekels. And they gave a reason that sounds pretty good. They said, well, we can't take foreign currency because it has like the, um, the, uh, an image of Caesar on it. And Caesar was worshipped as God, so we can't accept that. Even though the rest of the year, the Jews used their foreign currency, and they probably did too. But at the time of Passover, they said, no, you have to exchange your foreign currency for Jewish shekels. And don't you know that they charged an outrageous fee to make the exchange? I read anywhere from 25 to 40% exchange rate. So the people, the poor people were getting ripped off coming and going. And also, this was the time of year that the people paid the annual temple tax, which was also a good thing. It was a half a shekel. It was a good thing. It was for the maintenance of the temple to up, you know, maintain it and keep it up and everything. But again, they had to exchange their foreign money, money for the half shekel, and they were also getting ripped off. So the people were being forced into um, being victimized by the money changers and by the animal merchants. So the outer courtyard, if you can picture this in your mind. Now, this is we're talking about an area of some 13 football fields, 
loaded with money changers. You know, have you ever been to a foreign country where they're all trying to sell and get your, you're a tourist and they're trying to get your attention and they're all shouting above each other, come to my booth, you know, I'll give you a better price. I got such a deal. Come on, come on. And they're all shouting in that, you know, to try to get people to come to their money changing table or to buy their animals, etc. So it, what was supposed to have been a place for prayers and a worship, a worship for Gentile proselytes or Gentiles who were showing some interest in, in Jehovah God. It's, the place smelled like a barnyard. Just imagine the waste alone, the dung. It had to smell like a barnyard. And it sounded like a cattle market. And it was the scene of many great greedy swindlers during the Passover feast. It was something else. It was not at all what God had intended when he gave the original design of the tabernacle, was it? The poor were being shamefully cheated, and the worship of God was greatly hindered. God and the things of God were treated most irreverently by those who were really only interested in, uh, in gaining a profit by using his name and his house. Does that go on today? Oh, yes, it surely does. It surely does. So even people who sincerely came to the temple to seek fellowship with God or to cleanse themselves of sin and to worship God, they probably lost most of their devotional spirit by the time they pushed their way through this maze of uh, corrupt temple inspectors. <clears throat> Can you imagine standing in line for hours? You brought a lamb all the way from, let's say, Timbuktu. You carried a lamb with you. And you finally get to the temple, and you have to stand in line forever, and you finally get up to the temple inspector, and you're a perfect lamb. He says, uh-uh won't pass i see i see a gray hair there or whatever he finds and i don't know what they did they probably said well we'll give you a quarter for the lamb and they'd take the lamb and they'd probably sneak it over into one of their other booths you know and sell it to somebody else they say now you got to go stand in line by so then you have to go through the crowd and everybody's shouting at you buy from me buy from me and you have to stand in another line you finally pay a rip-off price for one of their lambs which was in worse condition than the one you brought probably and then you have to stand in line again at a money changer's booth and get ripped off for exchanging your money. And then you go to stand in another line to pay your temple tax and get ripped off again. So by the time you get into the inner court where you're supposed to worship God and offer your sacrifice, you're all bent out of shape. Wouldn't you be upset? It sounds like Christmas. <laughs> Shopping at the mall. Oh, I mean, so... They, they were cheated throughout the whole process, and you know that such an experience would certainly put a damper on anyone's spiritual search. Now, there were many people, and I think probably most of the Pharisees didn't, didn't like this. There were many people who did not approve of what was going on in Annas' bazaar, and many others who were angry over the profane and the irreverent situation in the temple, yet no one had been bold enough or authoritative enough to do anything about it. If anyone had tried to do something about it, what do you think would have happened? Annas would have sent the temple guard after them and they would have been arrested and put away. However, one particular Passover, three Passovers earlier, proved very different. A young man about the age of 30, a former carpenter from a little despised Galilean village called Nazareth, a man no one had ever heard of, unless they had been in Cana for a wedding when he turned water into wine. But otherwise, no one had ever heard of him, especially down in Judea and Jerusalem. 
this young man comes suddenly to the temple at the time of Passover, and he takes one sweeping look at the situation and made for himself a scourge of cords. You know where he got the cords? They led the oxen and the sheep in with ropes, you know, with cords. So he picked up a bunch of the cords that would be laying all over the pavement, and he made himself a little whip, and then single-handedly... Now, at this time, he only had six disciples, a ragtag little band of Galilean fishermen with him. And here comes this guy... Who in the world is he? And he single-handedly drove out the whole crooked crowd. That's in his first temple cleansing back in John chapter 2. He says, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Wow. And, and everybody just, he didn't hurt anybody, but everybody just ran from him. He cleaned out 13 football fields worth of this stuff going on. Can you imagine? And nobody reached out to stop him. That had taken place at the beginning of the Lord's ministry. It was actually a fulfillment of a prophecy given in Malachi. I want you to turn to the last book of the Old Testament real quickly, Malachi 3. Most of you know this prophecy, but let's look at it again. Malachi 3, verses 1 to 4. That prophecy, right? You know, it was the last part of the Old Testament. Gave Israel one more way that she could know her Messiah when he came. First of all, she could know him because he would be heralded by God's messenger who would prepare the way before him. It says, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. As God speaking. Me is God. (laughs) So that should have told them the Messiah was going to be God. All right, so the first way they could know their Messiah is that there would be a messenger who would come and prepare the way before him. Now, who fulfilled that role in the life of Christ? John the Baptist, of course. All right, second, Malachi tells them that they could know their Messiah because he would come suddenly to his temple. Now, what a clue this was for the people to know their Messiah when he came. First of all, he'd be heralded by a messenger. And they all knew John the Baptist was a God-sent messenger. He's the one who pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. Fulfilled. Okay, check that off. Second, you'll know your Messiah because he'll suddenly come to the temple. Nobody would ever have heard of him, but all of a sudden, there he is. Um, So the second way they could know him is that he would come suddenly to the temple, and that's exactly what he did. And it says not only would he come to God's temple, he would come to his temple. You know what a clue that was? When her Messiah came, he would be deity. It doesn't say he would come to God's temple. It says he would come to his temple. The temple was God's. Thus, the Messiah would be equal to God, for the temple would be his. And what did Malachi's prophecy state that the Messiah would do when he suddenly appeared in his temple? Let's go on and read it. It says, But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. When he comes suddenly to the temple, it's not going to be to jump off the pinnacle and be caught by angels as Satan tempted him to do or as the people would have liked for him to do. But when he comes suddenly to the temple, what's he going to do? He's going to be like refining fire and like soap. He's going to clean it. He shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he shall purify who? The sons of Levi. He's going to purify the priesthood and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. 
Isn't that exactly what he did? It is appropriate that Jesus also cleansed the temple twice. Now, you'll read some Bible critics and commentators that'll say, no, he only cleansed it once. John just had it in the wrong part of his gospel. John had the temple cleansing at the beginning of his gospel account, and he goofed up. You know, we know it was at the end. Well, that's just a bunch of baloney in your homework. You can look up and, and compare the two, and you'll see that there's so many differences in them. I've already mentioned one. There were sheep and oxen in one. There were only doves in the other. One was definitely at the beginning of his ministry. The other was at the end of his ministry. In one, he made a cord of uh, a, a whip out of cords. The other one, he didn't, etc. There's a lot of differences. There were two cleansings. And that is very appropriate because it pictures the two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of the cleansings of the temple is the holiness of God. Why did he cleanse the temple? Because Jesus was concerned about God's holiness. And Christ's first coming ministry was all about purification, wasn't it? Isn't that what redemption is all about? Isn't that what his Passover sacrifice was all about? Cleansing the sinner from his sins? Both of these temple cleansings, the one at the beginning of his ministry and this one at the end of his ministry, occurred at the time of the Passover. I did it again, the past of feast over. I said that yesterday and I said it again. <laughs> I, and I told the ladies, I said, I couldn't do that again if I tried. Well, I did it again, the past of feast over. Do you like that? <laughs> But both of the cleansing happened at the time of the Feast of Passover, <laughs> which would be the feast when Christ would make possible the cleansing of all sinners with his own shed blood. The two cleansings, as I said, picture his two comings. Uh, because the prophecy of Malachi 3, verses 1 to 4, is what we could call a dual fulfillment prophecy. And it was only partially fulfilled at Christ's first coming. But just as the leaders of Israel ignored his first cleansing of John chapter 2 and were right back into the full swing of their corruption just a few Passovers later, you know, once Jesus cleansed the temple the first time, and then went back up into Galilee, what do you think Annas and his crowd did immediately? They set back all the, the booths and money tables. They set them all back up again. And so when we see two Passovers later, the whole thing is back into the, you know, the whole operation is, is back into uh, the full swing of their corruption. So he had to repeat his cleansing. And like that, so also will it be necessary for him to return to this earth, second coming, to finish the cleansing work that he began at his first coming. You see, the picture of him single-handedly cleansing the temple without one single person resisting him, which is amazing. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But that in itself is an incredible miracle because there were thousands of people in the temple that day, including temple guard, Roman soldiers. They were allowed in the Gentile court. And there were the priests and the Pharisees and Annas' guys and the merchants who didn't like... Why didn't two merchants grab him on either arm and stop him? I mean, it's just a miracle that everybody... And this time he didn't even have a cord, a, a, a scourge, a whip. And yet everyone just ran from him. That is a picture of him 
at the time of his return when no one will be able to stand in opposition to his judgment cleansing. Now, I want you to listen again to Malachi's words, and this time, think of them in terms of the Lord's second coming, because that will be the second time this prophecy will be fulfilled in full. All right? It says, But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the day of old and as in former years. The first fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy was merely a temporary cleansing and purifying of the temple, which did not even last three years. At the Lord's return, however, the sons of Levi will truly have been refined and purified through the fiery furnace of the seven years of tribulation. And the temple itself will be purified by the very presence of Christ himself, the Holy One of God. You know, at the Lord's second coming, He's going to end the battle of Armageddon and he's going to come down to the Mount of Olives and then he's going to descend the Kidron Valley and come into Jerusalem through the eastern gate which has been closed all this time, boarded up. He's going to just burst right through that, that gate. The Muslims boarded it up years and years ago. He's going to go through the eastern gate. Where do you think he's going to go? First thing, straight to the temple and suddenly appear in the temple what do you think he's going to do he's going to cleanse it he's going to purify it he's going to purify you know it's been defiled the antichrist would have set up an image of himself there in the very holy of holies jesus i don't know if he'll burn the whole thing down and start over and you know he could just with a word build the millennial temple i don't know what he'll do but he's going to purify that temple and he's going to have a place to live first time he didn't did he he had no place to lay his head because they wouldn't let him into the naos, the inner sanctuary. But during the millennial kingdom, do you know where he's going to lay his head at night? In the holy of holies where the Shekinah glory of God rightfully belongs. And there won't need to be an Ark of the Covenant because he is the Ark. Beautiful. All right. Um, where was I? All right. So it says here... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, picture yourself as the Lord's disciples now or as some of his other followers or, you know, the the crowd that had been hailing him just the day before. Hosanna to the king of Israel. Hosanna to the son of David. They were hoping and they were expecting Jesus at this time to overthrow Israel's enemies, the Gentile Romans. And instead, what does he do? He denounces his own people. This had, I mean, where does judgment begin? Judgment begins at the house of God, and that's exactly what he did. Instead of judging the Romans, he went to the house of God and judged, and judged what was going on there, and that was right. It, it, but this had to be inconceivable to the Jewish mindset of that day that their long-awaited Messiah would condemn them instead of deliver them as they had hoped that he would attack Israel instead of attacking Rome and this is why do you begin to see that this is why all the acclaim and the accolades of him 
uh, that were hailed on Sunday when he rode in on that little donkey very quickly fell away. They were very short-lived, and those acclaims soon turned into cries and shouts for his crucifixion. You see, there are a lot of people that day who did not like, I think the people liked what he did, but the merchants and the money changers and, and all the, the shepherds out in the fields who were making an extra profit on all this, and surely, you know, Annas and all his crowd and the priests, none of them liked what was going on. And I don't think a particular disciple liked it at all, one named Judas Iscariot. This is not the way to be popular, Jesus. Why are you attacking Israel instead of attacking the Romans? So you see how their cries died out and how they changed during the course of this week. Now, on this second occasion of the Lord's cleansing of the temple, we learned that he did not make a small scourge of cords as he had done the first time. He simply, it says, he cast out them that sold and bought. You know who that is? Basically, everyone who was engaging in the commercialism here sold out those, cast out those who sold and bought and overthrew the tables of the money changers. I would love to have seen this. Money changers everywhere with their little tables. And can't you see their coins just piled up everywhere on their table? And he just knocks over those tables and the money just goes rolling everywhere on that stone pavement. And can't you see the little money merchants trying to get their money? And all those pious people in the court of the Gentiles, they say, oh, I won't touch that money because it's not mine. Right. They're all scattering for the money and everybody's picking up the money. And don't you know, they lost a lot of money that day. And then, this is so interesting to me, I had fun with this, but it says, look at it, this is in Mark eleven fifteen. it says that he, he overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, Mark eleven fifteen. I said already there's no mention of lambs because this is now the 11th of Nisan, but you know, the Lord had a special compassion for poor people. His own parents, Mary and Joseph, had to present doves instead of a lamb because they were so poor they couldn't afford a lamb at the time of Jesus' purification. And he also has a compassion for creatures, you know, animals. Here he, um, instead of knocking over the tables of the dove sellers, which would mean that the, the, the doves in the cages sitting on those tables would be upset. If you knock over a table where you've got doves in cages, those little poor doves, their wings are going to be flat or flapping and they're going to be nervous and scared. They're going to fall on the ground and maybe get away and be flying all over the place. He had compassion on the doves because what he did instead is he just went, and I could picture him just kicking out the little stools that the dove sellers were sitting on. He kicked the seats out from under the dove sellers. He didn't hurt the doves. So don't think that he was out of his mind in his rage. He was in complete control. He knew exactly what he was doing here. Now in just, and, and again, it's amazing to think that no one stopped him. But in just a few days, he would willingly, willingly submit himself into the hands of Israel's religious rulers to do with him as they pleased. But on this occasion... They were absolutely, totally powerless to do anything to stop him from making his demonstration of his divine authority. No one dared to touch him. And so he went around and he cast everyone out. And then we are told in verse 16, and Mark is the only one who tells us this, that he would not permit, he wouldn't suffer anyone to carry a vessel through the temple, through the temple courtyard. 
as I said earlier, the people were using the temple grounds as a thoroughfare. It was so large that uh, the entrances had become a uh, shortcut from one section of Jerusalem to another, especially if somebody was carrying a heavy load. Picture ladies, you know, with big water pots on their heads or something. Instead of going all the way around the temple to get over to one side of Jerusalem, they would cut right through. Now, we don't do that, do we? Anybody could take a shortcut and... I actually did that today to get out to my car and get some books. I took a shortcut through the church. But it was showing irreverence. And there had been a law against that. But nobody was enforcing it. But Jesus did. He had a zeal for his father's house. And the reverence and the holiness of God. And so he put an end to it. And that tells us that he must have been there all day to make sure that this was enforced. I can picture him stationing Peter and Andrew at this gate. Now, Peter remembered this because Peter is the one who told Mark. Mark's the one who wrote it down for us. But it made, an, it made an impression on Peter. He probably told James and John, you stand at that gate. You know, Nathaniel and Philip, you stand. And they were there all day to make sure that nobody, nobody set up their tables again and nobody made shortcuts through the temple. And I can say that he was there all day because if you look at verse 19 of Mark 11, it says, and when even was come, he went out of the city. So... That means that he stayed there all day. And we know he was there later on in the day when these Greeks come seeking for him there in the court of the Gentiles. And this would mean that there were no further sales that day. At a time, this would really hurt the pocketbooks of the merchants and the money changers because this was a time when they were expecting to make, make great profits. You know, they had to make great profits in order to pay off Annas and the rent and everything. But nobody dared to do anything to stop him because the, the merchants themselves were also afraid of his popularity with the people. And they knew they weren't very popular with the people. They've been robbing and cheating the people for years. Actually, historical records tell us that several decades after Christ, you know, right after Christ was crucified, don't you know that Annas went right back to doing this? You know, they, they wanted to destroy him. They thought they destroyed him and he was gone. And so they set up their whole um, temple business operation all over again. But several decades later, history tells us that the Jewish people did riot against this. And they did finally revolt. They had finally had it up to here and so they put an end to it. Well, the Lord's actions of this day caused two reactions. First of all, we're told in verse 18 that some scribes and chief priests. Now, these would be the two principal groups of the Sadducees when they heard it what was going on they were so angry that they sought to destroy him which means in the Greek they wanted to kill him they sought for how they could kill him because why what's it say they feared him with his kind of authority he could easily turn the people against them the merchants and the chief priest, I'm talking about the chief priest, I'm sorry, and not only ruin their profitable business operations, but even possibly replace them in their positions of leadership. So the chief priests and the scribes here, they dare not yet touch him, or the people might kill them. Not him, but them. So they sought for a plan on how they could utterly do away with him. And then the second reaction was... <clears throat> that uh, the people were astonished at his doctrine. That's in the last part of verse 18. 
they were amazed at what he sat down and taught them that day. The, the word taught is given in the imperfect tense, which means that he had an extended period of teaching. For anyone who was willing to listen to him, he taught them. And I don't know what he taught them, but it had to do with his house being what it should have been. I think he taught them on the right way the temple should have been used as compared to the wrong way that they were using it. I wouldn't be surprised if he talked about the design that God had given to them for the right way the temple was to be used. And whatever they heard that day, they were astonished at it. It was amazing to them. I know that his appeal was to an authority that no Jew could contradict because he quoted from Scripture. He said, my house shall, notice he said my house, shall be called an house of prayer for all people. And when he actually quoted that, that's Isaiah 56, 7, but he used the word for all nations in verse 17. And those words are important because the court of the Gentiles was the only place available to people of other nations for their prayers and for their reverent approach to Jehovah God. And yet, for the convenience of Jewish worshipers, this part, the one and only place where Gentiles were permitted, yet this place had been turned into a den of thieves, where bartering and greed and noise and animal stench prevailed. It destroyed the very purpose of the temple for the Gentile people. I think Jesus sat there that day and told the people, Look, you Jewish people are supposed to be missionaries to the Gentiles around you. Why aren't there more Gentiles who believe in Jehovah God? I'll show you why. Look what you've done with the only court that you allow them into. How could anybody get saved in this mess? I think he taught them like that, and they were astonished. They were not only astonished at his doctrine, they were astonished at his actions because his actions, think about this, his actions that day were really a a claim to a higher authority than that exercised by the high priest Annas. Now, Annas at that time had the real power, power. He's the one the Jewish people listened to. Caiaphas was just kind of, um, a Roman puppet. But Jesus was, wasn't he in his cleansing of the temple? Was he not teaching against everything that Annas had permitted and even sponsored? He was, he was actually in effect making an appeal to the nation, to the people of Israel here to repudiate their present rulers and to accept him as their true high priest. Now, you know, the people had expected some kind of, uh, they had anticipated some kind of a really spectacular show on Palm Sunday, hadn't they? You know, when he came in riding in on that donkey and thousands of people were waving their palm branches and hailing him and they thought when he went to the temple he's going to get up on the stairs and make a stage and, and do something really spectacular. And when he didn't, when all he did was find a corner somewhere and heal blind and lame people all day long, They were sorely disappointed, weren't they? Very disappointed. They wanted a show. Well, they got their show. They just didn't get it on Sunday. They got it on Monday. He gave them a show. I mean, he cleaned that whole place out. And uh, that not only proved he was not only fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi 3, but he was also fulfilling another prophecy 
a messianic prophecy found in Psalm 69.9, where it says that the Messiah would have a zeal for the house of God. It says, for the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. He did indeed have a zeal for the house of God, didn't he? And he proved it. He was proving over and over and over and over. How many times did he have to show them? He was proving that he was indeed their long-awaited Messiah. So, surprise, surprise. (laughs) Instead of attacking Rome, Jesus had attacked Judaism, which was pictured not only in his cursing of the fruitless fig tree, but also here in uh, the cleansing of the filthy temple. Instead of being a conqueror over Gentile oppressors, He was a confronter of those who were oppressing Gentiles from worshiping God. Rather than going to the temple and preaching revolution, he went to the temple and preached righteousness. Instead of clearing out the enemy without, he cleaned out the enemy within. His Sunday entrance into the city and on to the temple, accompanied by multitudes who proclaimed him the son of David and the king of Israel, had not at all pleased the Pharisees. Do you remember that? The Pharisees were upset about that. However, his Monday entrance into Jerusalem and straight to the temple to purify it of the commercialization and irreverence and lack of concern for Gentile proselytes as Israel's true priest, that did not at all please the Sadducees. And now these two main groups of Israel's religious rulers who normally were very antagonistic toward one another, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, now their mutual hatred of Jesus would soon bring these normally normal, normal enemies, normally they were enemies, would bring them together with one primary motive. And what was that? To eliminate Jesus. So, but he was in control all along, wasn't he? Well, I didn't have time to read from this book. We'll do that another time. Let's pray. Father God, as scripture tells us, now we, we are the temple of the living God because Christ dwells in us while the mystery of that truth, he dwells within those who have accepted him as Lord and Savior. He is the hope of glory within us. And so our bodies should be kept clean and pure and holy. The the realization that our bodies are are your temple, that should move all of us to, to, um, to get rid of any doubtful and questionable things and habits that we might participate in, any places we might go that, that we shouldn't go because we're the temple of the living God. We should be wary of what we take into our bodies and what we do with them and take good care of them because God only dwells in the best. And greater hope is that when our earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, when this body goes into the grave, we have a building of God, a house that was not made with hands, which is eternal in heaven. And this is the only temple which is eternal eternal, because that temple is the Lord God Almighty. It's you, God, and it's Christ, as it tells us in Revelation 21, 22. One day we will eternally tabernacle with you and how we do look forward to and long for that day to come soon. We pray, Jesus, in your blessed, holy, wonderful name. 
Amen.